couple weeks, but as we jump into our text today, I want to go ahead and let you know that our goal for this morning is we're going to see John actually calling uh, Christians to simply rest in the fact that we belong to God. You see, John would want us to know as we get ready to read in this section of 1 John chapter 5 that God is our God who answers prayers. And so as believers in Christ today, as those who uh, claim a victory because Jesus Christ is Lord, because those of us who are Christians today, we can rest in knowing that we now have victory that is found in Christ Jesus, who is the source of eternal life. Now again, I recognize that over uh, the previous two weeks, we're about to see John again spend his final moments in this letter assuring the believers of who they are in Christ. And you might be sitting there, and if you've been here the past three weeks, you might be saying, okay, look, we get it. This is three weeks in a row that we've now been talking about assurance. Well, obviously, John has a point here. You see, clearly assurance Uh, John would want us to know that he wants us to be assured, really, in who it is that we are, but also to whom it is we now belong to. So clearly this is at the forefront of John's mind as he is writing his closing thoughts to this letter. So John is going to close his letter by pointing us to the importance of knowledge and the importance of what it is that we should know to be true. Now, That actually leads us to a very interesting question this morning, which is this, what do we know to be true? I mean, it's an interesting question if you think about it. You see, some things that we know to be true are this. We know that the sun will rise in the east and then the sun will set in the west. We know to to be true that those who are born will certainly die. We know that in life, just as we see in nature, seasons will change. Some seasons will be good. Some seasons will be more difficult. We know that in many places in our country, they will experience spring, summer, winter, and fall. We know in Florida that is not the case for us. We experience hot, hotter, hurricane, and two days of winter. Those are our seasons. They change though, right? We also know this to be true. We know that Chick-fil-A's chicken sandwich will always be better than Popeye's. I don't care what you say. I really believe that's half the fights we're fighting right now. And if you don't believe that and you want to argue with me that Popeye's has the superior chicken sandwich, come at me, bro. I got all day to have this argument with you, okay? These things we know to be true, right? Well, when you look at the text that we have before us this morning, John is going to spend this final section of his letter pointing us to what it is that we can really know to be true. So this morning, we're going to answer the question, what do we know? So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I would encourage you to turn with me to 1 John chapter 5. We're going to begin reading together in verse 13. And if you can and you are able and you have found your place in the Word, I would invite you now to stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God. Now again, this is John writing, he's writing to the local church in 1 John chapter 5, beginning in verse 13, this is what he writes. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. 
If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. The word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you right now thanking you for this day and thanking you for the opportunity that we have just in these next few moments to spend time understanding your word. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we've had to sing your word this morning. We thank you for the opportunity that we've had to to hear your word proclaimed, to pray your word. And so, Father, we pray that as we have these next few moments together, Father, search our hearts and our minds. Prepare us for what it is that you have for us. Teach us according to your truth. And God, may you and you alone be glorified. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We praise you for who you are. We thank you for what it is that you have done for us. We thank you for the assurances that we have now in knowing you as Lord. And so, Father, we pray that you prepare our hearts for your truth. Father, we love you, we praise you, we thank you. And it's in your precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Now again, as you read 1 John chapter 5 and you see the closing of this letter, this clearly is not the typical closing of a letter that we are accustomed to. In fact, when you compare this closing to that of the Pauline letters, this is clearly different from the way Paul would normally close his letters. You see, Paul closes his letters by greeting everyone and and sending greetings upon his behalf and upon the behalf of those who are with them. But when you compare Paul to John, clearly John is allowing knowledge to dominate his closing section. He's not necessarily focused at this moment on the people, but rather the knowledge that the local church should now have. In fact, the word know here appears about seven different times depending upon the translation that you're currently reading. So John is telling us that our faith, our belief in Jesus Christ, this Christianity that we believe in, this is a this is a faith that is not based upon phrases like, I think so, or I feel like, or rather, I hope so, but rather we are a part of what can be best described as an I know faith that has clearly been revealed to us according to the word of God. So for John and for us today, as we look at this text, we need to realize that we worship and serve a God who only speaks truth. And not just any truth, but capital T truth according to God and according to the word of God. So for our time together, let's look at John's final section here in 1 John chapter 5 and determine what do 
we know. The first thing we're going to see is in verse 13. We see that we can know that we have eternal life. Now, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, honestly, I think this whole letter leads us really to this verse. I believe this is the central theme of what John is talking about. You see, to to abide in the light, to abide in God, to abide in love, it all leads us to knowing that Jesus is the Son of God. And since we know that Jesus is the Son of God, this now leads us to know and to rest in the assurance that we now have eternal life that Christ Jesus has given to us. You see, John in this passage wants all believers, according to his own words, to know that you have eternal life. Now, again, before we jump any further into this text, we need to realize that John, by this point, has already given us several verses where he says, I am writing these things to you so that you may know and then fill in the blank. In fact, when you go back and look at uh, 1 John chapter 1, we see that one of his reasons for writing this letter was that it was written so that our joy may be complete. You look again at 1 John chapter 2, and we see that John is writing this letter so that, or that this letter is written so that we may not sin. And if we do sin, then as believers to know that our sin is forgiven. He also tells us in 1 John chapter 2 that he writes so that we would know that there are some who will come who will attempt to deceive us. And then we get to 1 John chapter 5 in our passage today, and we see that John is writing these things so that we would know that we have eternal life. You see, John clearly cares about the local church. John clearly cares about what it is that the local church should know about their faith. So when we look at our text today in 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 through 21, John, in recognizing that believers will struggle with doubts, now tells the believers that it is possible to have eternal life. And so John wants believers to have assurances. That's why he uses the phrase in verse 13, I write these things, which is a reference back to everything we read about over the past two weeks in 1 John chapter 5 verses 1 through 12. You see, this whole letter by this point can be summed up in the fact that as believers, we are called to believe in Jesus as the Son of God, and therefore, because we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, because we believe that he is Lord, because we believe that our salvation comes by him and him alone, we are now called to pursue faithful obedience, which can then be seen in how we treat or better yet, how we love one another. And because of these things, we can now be assured that as believers in Christ, we have eternal life. That is the summation of John's entire letter, if you really think about it. You see, for us today, this is an important message for us because too many people have been basing their faith on feelings. And I want to 
talk about that for a moment. You see, too many people come in and they, they talk about the word of God as if it's something they feel. They talk about God as if he's some sort of air-conditioned, goosebump, hair-standing-up kind of feeling. And the reality is that's not God at all. That just means you have good air condition, which I'm going to go ahead and tell you is something I am not feeling right now from the pulpit. Nevertheless, that feeling is not where my assurance lies. Okay? Oftentimes we wake up, even as believers in Christ, and we say to ourselves, man, it's a Sunday morning, it's been a long weekend, I've had a very rough week, I've had a very rough weekend, and I'm just not feeling it today. I'm not feeling church today. I'm not, I'm not really feeling like I want to be there. And so what we want to do is we just want to pack things up and, and stay at home as if God's going, okay, well, if you're not feeling me today, just stick me on a shelf, and when you're prepared, you can come back to me. Other times as Christians, we say things, you know what, I'm really feeling it, man. I've been listening to this this new Christian album. I've been listening to this new Christian thing. I actually read my Bible once this week, and so, man, I'm feeling God. And so since I'm feeling God and and everything's going well and all is good, then, man, I'm going to go to worship. You know what John is saying to us in this text this morning? He's saying no. He's saying, come on, Christian, we're man, we're better than this. Feelings come and go. In the same way you fall in love, you can easily fall out of love. You cannot base your faith on feelings. Rather, as Christians today, we are called to have confidence in what we believe. Or better yet, called to have confidence in what we know to be true. You see, as Christians today, we should be able to look at one another and say, man, look. Even when everything is crumbling around us, even after a week where we've lost a family member or we've lost a job or the week hasn't gone the way we thought it would or we failed a test or we did poorly in practice, even when everything is falling apart around us, the Christian will say, yes, this week has been awful. Yes, this week has been one of the the worst weeks that I've ever experienced, but Jesus is still the Son of God. And it's in Christ alone that I place my faith. It's in Christ alone that I place my trust. It's in Christ alone that I place my hope. And so no matter what life throws at me, I will continue to pursue my God. You see, we don't operate on a feeling faith. Rather, John calls us to certainty, to know our faith. Now, if this message is not enough, then listen to Jesus's own words. When you get to the gospel of John chapter 10, beginning at verse 28 and 29, Jesus says this, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hands. Notice this about Jesus's words here. Notice he never mentions feelings. You see, as believers in Christ, we are called to rest in knowing that we are now in the hands of God and nothing nor no one can ever take us from him. You see, we have hope. We know 
that we have eternal life. This leads John to his second point of what it is that we should know, and it's found in verses 14 through 17. John tells us that we as believers should know that God hears us, and not only does God hears us, but God answers us as well. Yes, now we are talking about prayer here, and I love what George Mueller says about prayer. He says, prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance, but rather it is laying hold of God's willingness. You see, nothing lies beyond the power of God. However, when we read verse 14, we need to, we need to just pause for a moment and take stock of what's being said here, because too oftentimes people read this passage and they read, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to him, he hears us. And so people will read that passage and they'll say, you see, God will give you all that you ask of him. And for whatever reason, like I just did, they'll mumble through what I believe is the most important phrase in this passage. Again, let me read it again. Verse 14. And this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Again, did you catch what was said in the middle of this verse? If you ask anything according to his will. Again, if you have your Bible and that's what your translation says, I would highlight that phrase. I would underline that phrase. I mean, did you really catch what is being said here by John? You see, here's the truth. God will not give us anything that is beyond his will. God is not gonna give you or give me anything that goes beyond his purpose. Now, does that mean that we worship and serve a God who is limited? No, but it does mean that God will not give us anything that is contrary to his will for our lives. And so the reality is this, God's will may be different than what it is that we want and desire. But as Christians today, If we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, if we believe that it was Christ Jesus who paid the atonement for our sins, if we believe that Jesus is the one who saved us and we declare today that Jesus Christ is Lord, then as believers in him today, it should be our desire to do his will ultimately for his glory and not our own. You see, even Jesus recognized the same point when he prayed in the garden. In Luke chapter 22, verse 42, he prays, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. You see, just as Jesus prayed in the garden, so too should our desire to be to do the will of God for the glory of God. Because as we read in Romans chapter 12, God's will is good, pleasing, and perfect. And let's be honest with ourselves for a second. If we were left to our will, I'm quite confident in myself that I would find a way to screw it up. I'm quite confident in myself that what I would will and desire for my life would not, not only not be good, it wouldn't be pleasing, and I assure you, 
it would be far from perfect. But notice that's not what God offers us. He offers us his will. And so our desire, our prayers should be to do the will of God for the glory of God. Now what's going to happen here is John is now going to move from there to addressing, I think, what can best be described as one of the hardest texts to understand in the Bible. In fact, when you look at verses 16 and 17, most pastors do not preach on this text. But man, that's not how I operate, so let's roll through it. John is going to address someone who is in sin that does not lead to death and sin that now leads to death. And so the best way I can describe this for you to to kind of keep this um, in layman terms in a way that we can all understand this morning is I believe that John has spiritual death in mind and what he is talking about here is he's talking about two types of people that are in his view, two very distinct and different people. You see, the first person that John has in mind is the believer in Christ who has fallen into sin. You see, because the believer has faith in Christ as their atonement, their salvation is not at stake. Therefore, as a believer, they can be restored. And so John calls us to pray for forgiveness and to pray for their joy to be restored since their sins do not lead to spiritual death. Now again, don't mishear what John is saying. John is saying that now that since you're a Christian and that you believe that Jesus is Lord, you now have a get out of jail free card. This is not Christian monopoly. Rather, what we can rest in is knowing that even as believers in Christ, we are still fatally flawed individuals growing in righteousness, seeking to glorify God, and we're not always going to get it right. And so Christ Jesus has offered us restoration. Therefore, what is in the hand of God can never be taken out. In other words, we cannot be taken from God. That then leads John to talk about the second person he has in mind. And the person he has in mind here is those who willfully oppose the witness of God. You see, these are the the false teachers who John has been refuting this entire time through his letter. And so John says that there are those whose sin leads to death. And when he says these words, he's actually thinking of those who willfully and resolutely reject God. And so they reject Jesus Christ. And since they reject Jesus, since they reject Jesus being the son of God, they now reject God and therefore their fate and their destiny is sealed and it is death. In other words, there is no eternal life. So I want to tell you something this morning. I want you to understand with full certainty what John is saying. Yes, death is very real. And yes, there will not be an option to change your mind when all of a sudden you see God seated on the judgment seat. This sounds harsh, but this is the reality of our faith. And so literally what we have John saying to us this morning is, man, when you see these people sin, when you see these false teachers sin, When you see these non-Christian sin, man, praying for forgiveness for them is useless because how can they be forgiven if they don't even know God in the first place? 
Now, some people would argue, wait a minute, John, are you kind of being a bully here? I mean, this kind of seems like a, a kid with a magnifying glass staring down on the anthill. This doesn't sound very pleasant at all, but rather I want you to understand what John is telling us this morning. He's telling us, look, non-Christians are going to act like non-Christians. This, this, this should not surprise us at all. I mean, I don't, I don't understand the world that we live in when all of a sudden as Christians we wake up and watch the news and we're surprised by the direction we see our world heading. I mean, we've already been told this was going to happen, but for whatever reason we keep waking up more and more surprised about what's going on when the reality is what we should be doing is we should be praying for those who don't know Jesus and praying for salvation that will then lead them to repentance as they come to faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. You see, so as we look at these two examples of of these people, John is teaching us that prayer is a powerful weapon, and yet it's prayer that is one of the most neglected weapons within the church. In fact, it was Charles Spurgeon speaking on prayer, says it this way. He says, we cannot all argue, but we can all pray. We cannot all be leaders, but we can all be pleaders. We cannot all be mighty in rhetoric, but we can all be prevalent in prayer. Spurgeon then says, I would sooner see you eloquent with God than with men. You see, our prayers, our hearts should be for the will of God of God. And a part of that will should be the fact that our prayers and our hearts are now bent to praying for salvation for the lost and then praying for our brothers and sisters to be restored to one another. And so I want to ask you this morning, when was the last time your prayers were bombarded with prayers of restoration for people who did not know Jesus Christ as Lord? Better yet, for those of you who are part of email prayer chains or, or group me prayer chains or text message prayer chains or, or please not another app prayer chain. And you start getting these emails. When was the last time your, your prayer chain was bombarded with the prayers of restoration for the lost. I mean, come on, think about this for a moment. How different would our church look if we spent time praying for our family members who were lost, praying for our classmates who were lost, praying for our colleagues who were lost, praying for nations who didn't know Jesus Christ. Imagine how that would change the heart of the people of God. John moves from there in the verse 18 and he gives us the third statement that we should know. As believers, he said that we should know that we now have victory over sin. Again, this is in verse 18. John is going to tackle one more time the doctrine of regeneration or what it means to be born again. And so John is going to do this this time by giving us three statements of affirmation to assure us of our victory over sin. The first is found in knowing that since we've been born of God, now that we are born of God, we do not continue in sin. In other words, according to John... Sin is no longer a pattern for our lives. As a believer in Christ, sin is not the pattern of our life. Rather, as believers, we now seek purity in our lives as opposed to perfection. Now again, I want to tell you, if you're a believer in Christ in this room, you are not 
called to perfection. You are never going to live up to the standard of perfection that you set for yourself. You will sin, you will fall short of the glory of God. Stop being perfect. Stop trying to be perfect. Because when you try to be perfect, you end up covering up a multitude of sins. It's like taking all the the junk in your house and realizing we're about to have family over. What do we do with this junk? I know, throw it in the closet and shut the door. They'll never know. You see, that's what we do when we attempt to be perfect. And here's the reality. If any one of us could walk our lives being perfect, then there would be no need for Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus was the one and only who lived a sinless, perfect life. But rather, as Christians, we're called to seek purity. We're called to strive for purity so that we can grow in righteousness, knowing that, man, we're not always going to get it right, but we're going to do everything we can for the glory of God to the best of our abilities. And yes, we may fall short, but by God's grace, we will be restored and we will keep moving forward, seeking holiness and seeking purity all for the glory of God. The second assurance that Paul gives us in verse 18 is that those who have been born of God can realize that God now protects them. You see, when John says these words, he's literally saying, look, Jesus is the one who keeps us. Jesus not only paid for our salvation, but now Jesus is the one who maintains our salvation as we grow in righteousness. And so it is Jesus Christ who now protects us. It is Jesus Christ who now keeps us safe, which leads to the third assurance that John talks about here. And that is this, because Christ protects us, the evil one does not touch us. Now again, I want to define the word touch here in the scripture. It literally means to grab hold of something or to grab hold of someone with the intent to harm or destroy them. Now I love what Alexander Ramsey says about this point. He says he is well kept from Christ, or excuse me, he is well kept whom Christ keeps. The enemy of souls cannot lay hold of him. He assaults but cannot seize. You see, Satan may grab at us. Satan may tempt us. Satan may allure us with the desires of the world, but because of the power of Christ that is within us, Satan cannot touch us. Satan cannot bring us to death. We are protected by the Son. We are kept safe by the Son. You see, at this point, I want to remind you to go back and read. If you're struggling, if you're, if you're struggling with doubt this morning, if you're struggling with temptation this morning, if you're struggling with the desires of the flesh this morning, I would encourage you to go back and read and remember the words of 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, where we read, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And so John would want us to know, coming back to our text today, that Jesus did exactly what it was that he said he was going to do. Satan has been defeated. And at the day of judgment, he will be destroyed. There is only one 
victory, and that victory is found in Christ Jesus, our Lord. John moves from there into verse 19, and we get to the the fourth thing that John would want us to know, and he says that as believers in Christ, we can now know that we now belong to God. Now, again, this sounds similar to what it is we've already talked about, but I think John wants to say it again to settle the truth for all believers. He does it by saying, we are from God. In other words, we need to know that we are now held firm by God, and so we can rest in knowing that death no longer has claim on us, and it allows us to say, in the midst of temptation, and in the midst of the struggles of the world, we can literally look to God and then look at the world and say, nope, not today, because my life rests in God, because I belong to him. But then notice what John does here. John literally changes gears and then goes on to say, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. You see, what John is doing is he's giving us a a glimpse of what we already know to be true. You see, the world today is controlled and captivated by the powers of Satan. It is the devil himself who has blinded the minds of, of, of unbelievers. He deceives people and leads them to fleshly desires and to pride of self. And so John reminds us that we as believers are in the midst of a global conflict and our enemy will stop at nothing in order to control cultures, societies, finances, and governments. You see, this world, led by the devil, hates who we are and opposes any advancement of the gospel. Now let that sink in for a moment because, man, I want to tell you something. When you walk out these doors today, you need to just rest in this fact, okay? Okay, here's here's a little assurance for you. Make you feel good, all right? When you walk out these doors, this world opposes you. Now go with God. Really assuring, right? As a Christian today, as a follower of Jesus Christ today, this world opposes you. You know why it's so hard to read your Bible when you sit there and think, man, I need to open my Bible and just read this thing today, and all of a sudden you get distracted by a hundred different things? Because the world opposes you. You know why all of a sudden you start thinking, man, I should really go prayer walk my neighborhood. Let me get my family together, and we're just going to prayer walk the neighborhood. And I don't know that neighbor that lives in the house, but I'm going to pray for that house. But then all of a sudden a hundred things start happening in your mind and your heart and in your own home that you decide not to go. You want to know why? Because the world opposes you. Because the devil is the one who is in control. He has laid his grip on those who do not believe in Christ. And so because of this opposition, man, as Christians, we have to have a wartime mentality. Man, we have to have a commitment to rescue those who are perishing in the clutches of the enemy. And because of this rescue mission, we need to realize that sacrifices are going to have to be made and they must be made. And so we need to remind ourselves again, as we've already read from Ephesians chapter six, we are not fighting flesh and blood today. Rather, we are fighting against the cosmic dark forces of the evil one and its 
power. And so as believers in Christ, man, it is time for us to start taking ground. In other words, it's time for us to jump back on this rescue mission and start telling people about the good news of Jesus Christ. And I got to tell you, self, as a, as a church today, as Christians today, how are we doing at faithfully living out the gospel and speaking the gospel into the lives of people who work with us or live around us? You see, I want to tell you, man, this is the purpose of our GCs. I told you back at announcements this was going to come up. Here it is, okay? This is why we have what's called gospel communities. And I want to go ahead and tell you, man, we don't call these things gospel communities because we didn't like all the other buzzwords. Okay, we didn't sit in a room and go, well, we're not going to call it life group because that's cliched. Clearly, we're alive and it's a group. We didn't sit in a room and go, hey, we're just going to call this community groups because we're in the community and we're a group. We didn't do that. No, when we, when we named these groups gospel communities, there was intent behind that. And the intent was to get a group of believers together for the purpose of praying for people who desperately need to hear the gospel, to, to then encourage one another to go out and share the gospel. And then if these people that you're sharing the gospel with won't first step foot in a church, then you have another avenue or another door that you can invite them into community with so that they can hear the gospel that's why we have gospel communities we have it so that the people who live within our spheres of influence and our circle of lives can hear the gospel and they can see how Christians really live so, man, i got to ask you this morning, as those who belong to God, let me ask you this question, man. How are we doing at leading others to faith in Christ? Because I'm going to tell you, that is the calling of all believers. It's to know him and to make him known. This leads to John's final truth that we can know today, and it's found in verse 20 and 21, and this is what he says. He says, we as believers can know. We as believers can know that we now know the truth. And again, not just any truth, but capital T truth. So here I go, two weeks in a row. If you were here last week, you heard me reference a few good men. I'm going to do it again this morning, okay? Same scene, same movie, same line in the movie. Everybody knows it. There's that scene with Tom Cruise as the lawyer. Jack Nicholson's on the stand. Jack Nicholson, Tom Cruise says, um, man, I'm, you know, he, he says, you, Jack Nicholson asks him, do you want the truth? Tom Cruise says, I'm entitled to it. Jack Nicholson asks him again, do you want the truth? And then what does Tom Cruise says? He says, I want the truth. And what does Jack Nicholson say? You can't handle the truth. How come nobody yelled that like he did? What's wrong with y'all? I mean, he yells it, man. I mean, I, listen, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, very few people intimidate me. I don't want Jack Nicholson yelling at me, okay? I don't. He, y- y'all forget, that dude played ba- a Joker back in the day in a Batman movie. He was evil, all right? That's the thing I don't want to hear. But here's the reality. Man, this isn't a movie today. This isn't a few good men. You see, here's the reality. We have a truth that we can now handle. 
We have a capital T truth that we want and desire, and it's a capital T truth that we should be willing to share. So John's going to end his letter the way the whole letter began, and he does it by talking about Jesus Christ. You see, John says in his text, and we know that the Son of God has come. Again, he's affirming the reality of the incarnation, but then notice what he says. He says, and has given us understanding. You see, Jesus Christ gives us understanding so that we can know the truth of God, which is that Jesus is the Son of God, and if you know him, then you can rest in knowing that you have eternal life. And so according to John, since we are in his Son, Jesus Christ, John literally tells us that we understand the gospel because of our union with Christ Jesus our Lord. Our knowledge and our understanding all now rests in our union with Christ Jesus our Lord. And then notice what John does here. John compliments verse 20 with verse 21 when he says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. You see, as those loved by John, again, this was the local church he was talking to. John now calls the believers to be on guard for those things that will come and try to take the place of God. Now, I want to tell you, we would do well as Christians today to hear and heed John's warnings and to begin to think through our own lives today and ask ourselves as Christians today, don't miss this, what have we placed above God? What have we placed above the word of God? See, I love what John Calvin, he says it this way. He says, man's nature is a perpetual factory of idols. You see, our lives, because of the the natural bent of our hearts, is always producing that which tries to take the place of God. Therefore, we have to continue working out our faith. We have to continue growing in righteousness and growing in our understanding of God according to the word of God all for the glory of God because the reality is idolatry is anything that we love, enjoy, and pursue more than God himself. It's anything that we love and enjoy and pursue more than Christ Jesus himself. In fact, idols will almost act as a false teacher in our lives. It'll promise a better way, but it'll never deliver. The idols in our life will never meet the needs that we have in the same way that Christ Jesus meets us and satisfies us. Now again, this is not a call to go to your homes today and and sit in your prayer closets and just chant Gregorian chants to yourself until you're blue in the face. I know some people may enjoy that, man. I'm looking at Corey Larkin right now. We're like, not a bad idea. Right, brother? I see you over there. You know? That's not what this is a call to. But rather, what we need to realize as believers is, man, it is possible to place well-meaning things that we think we're doing for Christ 
to then allow them to become idols in our lives when they no longer glorify Christ, but they glorify ourselves. So yes, let me say this, man, discipleship, evangelism, missions, these can all become idols when they are no longer about glorifying God. Let me unpack that for a minute because some people may be like, I'm sorry, what did you just say? Okay, here's what I mean by that, okay? If you ever go on a mission trip and you're going to faithfully serve a missionary or you're going to, to faithfully serve a church plant and you get there and all of a sudden as a church, you assume that you're the cavalry riding in to save the day, then you have made your missions an idol. And it's no longer about God being glorified. It's about you. Some of you may think I'm crazy. Listen, we saw this all the time in Atlanta when groups came to us. Missions can become an idol. Let me bring it more to a local level. When we think that our our particular theology has the market completely cornered on discipleship and we think that our way of thinking is the only way and is the only right way and therefore we look down upon other people because they are not where we are, then your discipleship has become an idol. When we look down upon other churches, And I'm going to go ahead and caveat this because, man, I got around a group of pastors today at a baseball game. And I'm going to tell you, one thing pastors do well is we make fun of each other pretty hard. It was great. It was great. I mean, I was dishing it and taking it from guys, okay? I'm going to go ahead and tell you, I was with a group of pastors. Corey was there. He'll testify to this. Corey and I were the best looking two in the bunch, okay? So you guys are fortunate to have us as your pastors. We are the most good looking guys. I'm kidding. That's not true. All right? I told one of my pastor friends I was going to say that this morning, so now he owes me lunch. So this is being recorded, so that's what just happened. Okay, there it was. I'm going to confess that to you today. But listen, as pastors, we joke a lot. We talk about each other a lot. We have a lot of fun at each other's expense, but we do it because we're brothers in Christ. We all know and love each other well. We know that we would do anything for one another. But here's the reality, man. When as Christians, when we begin to look down upon sister churches... When we begin to look down upon like-minded churches because we think that we're better than they are, because we think we do it better than they do, or because we're a little bit bigger, a little bit smaller than they are, so we are clearly better than they are, then here's what we've done. We've made our version of Christianity an idol when the reality is that is no Christianity at all. Rather, we are more like the Pharisees in that moment. You see, when we get to the close of John's letter here, John wants us to know one final thought. He wants us to know that Jesus is the Son of God. He wants us to know that only Christ and Christ alone deserves to be glorified. You see, nothing can take Jesus' place. Nothing or no one will ever satisfy us the way that Jesus can. There's going to be a lot of stuff that's going to come our way. And it's going to promise us a better way. But none of them will ever be able to deliver the way Jesus can. You see, John wants us to know that in order to abide in the light, we need to rest in Christ. We need to know that Jesus is the Son of God. 
We need to know that we now have victory over sin. We need to know that because of our confession, we know that we now belong to God and we need to know that we can now pray to him and he hears us and then we need to know his truth. You see, these are the things that John would want us to know. This is the way John closes his letter. And so the question I want to leave you with this morning is how are we now living what it is that we should know? Man, let's pray together.